0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be with uh, you all this morning. If we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, my name is Aaron. I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Wellspring. It's so good to see all of you this morning. Now before we get oh right sorry before we get started in our uh, teaching this morning, if you're a kid, want to hang out with some other kids, there's some amazing folks off to my left over here in the back that would love to hang out with you, so feel free to make your way over in that direction. Is it okay if I move this? I'm gonna move this. Is that okay? Okay, we'll see what happens. It's tape, so I don't know what that means, but okay. (laughs) There we go. All right, now I don't feel as constricted with that thing right there. All right. Like I said, my name's Aaron. I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Wellspring. We've been journeying through the Old Testament on Sunday mornings for really since the beginning of this year. And this morning, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Some of you might be like, Deuteronomy, what does that mean? Deuteronomy, the fifth book in our Bibles, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 30 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, Kind of an interesting thing about the word, the name Deuteronomy, it's a kind of a Greek word, it's a compound word. Deutero means second, something like that. And then the last half, nomo or namas means law. So it's the second law. And you might be wondering, why would we want more laws? Why would we want a second law? How many of you like being told what to do? How many of you like laws? How many of you like someone just coming at you and saying, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this? You just love, you thrive on laws, right? And I think if we're honest, right, most of us, you know, from a really young age, don't really like being told what to do, right? You know, the other day I'm having a conversation with my son, Cason, he's four, and he just really wanted to watch a movie. I mean, he would have, like, done anything to watch a movie. And so we're kind of having this back and forth, and I'm like, Casey, buddy. We're, like, pretty good at screen time. It's like Disneyland for our kids to, you know, watch something on TV. But he really wanted this particular day a couple of days ago to watch a movie. I'm like, buddy, we're not doing movies today. We're going to hang out. And he was, like, fighting with me, going back and forth. And finally I said, "Cason, okay, you say the word movie one more time. You're going to lose your afternoon snack. And, like, that's a big deal for him. Right. <laughs> so the afternoon snack. And so he kind of has like this, you know, if you've ever seen him kind of get a little upset, he kind of has like this kind of thing going on. And so he's, okay, he's, he's like, I won't say the word movie. And so he goes, muh, mm-hmm. I'm like, buddy, you say the word. He's like, I'm not saying it. I'm a cow. Muh. he just does like this little, his little Cason smirk. You know, you've seen him kind of run around here. And it's this thing that inside a Cason, and really it's for all of us too, right? I just see myself in that. I don't like being told what to do. And so I think we have, if we're honest, kind of this, I don't know, natural aversion to like laws and instruction and really just being told what to do. And so as we come to the book of Deuteronomy this morning, you might be wondering, okay, why would we have like a second law or just really additional laws to just, talk about this morning. Well, just kind of a little bit of context here. Last week, Tony taught through Numbers 13 and 14. Numbers 13 and 14 was that really sort of tragedy of a story where Israel is on the brink of going into the promised land, the land that all the way back in the book of Genesis, God had promised that he would give his children Israel. And as they're right on the precipice of entering into that land, because of their disbelief and lack of trust, they're unable to enter into that land. And God says to Israel, This exodus generation that saw all the mighty works that I've done rescuing you out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, you will die in the wilderness, and it will be 40 years later, the second generation will go into the promised land. And so a number of years have passed, decades have passed, and as we come to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving kind of a series of like his final speeches or sermons, we might call them, to that second generation as they are about to enter the promised land. And so that's why there's this second instruction That's being given. The sort of second giving of the law, if you will, that's being given. Now, there's another thing I just want to mention, too, with that word law. Again, in our English language, the word law, some of you might think of like a civil code or, again, someone coming from on high telling you what to do. And I think I just want to frame it in a couple different ways here. Number one, that word law in Hebrew is the word Torah. Most of us probably know that. But that word Torah can also be and often is translated in our English Bible, teaching or instruction. And like any good parent, teaching and instruction is not meant to just sort of be restrictive and sort of just take and squeeze all the fun out of life. Good teaching and good instruction is meant to guide and nurture and chart a course on the path toward life, on the path toward flourishing. And that, my friends, is I believe kind of the heartbeat behind God's instruction or God's law. That's why when you go on to read the rest of the scriptures, in particular the poets from the book of Psalms, the way they talk talk about God's instruction or God's law, it's this language of savoring and delighting and enjoying God's law. Psalm 19, verse 7, for example, the poet writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. For the poet of Psalm 19, God's law, God's instruction, God's teaching is not this restrictive kind of taking away my freedom. It's what brings revival to one's life. It's what brings joy to one's life. The next line, Psalm 19 verse 8. The law of the Lord is is perfect, is good, enlightening the eyes. Meaning this, that in order to see clearly, in order to have good vision in life, To see reality for what it really is requires a relationship, a connection, may I say a submission to God's instruction, to God's teaching. And this is, again, not to just, we have this idea in America where freedom is about, I want to do whatever I want, right? No one's going to tell me what to do. But biblically speaking, God's instruction is meant to to kind of channel us, to, to focus us, to chart a course for us to experience the flourishing life that God has for us. And so as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 30, what we're diving into is, is a series of ongoing sort of, again, speeches or sermons from Moses instructing, guiding, teaching Israel, the second generation, before they enter into the promised land so that they might actually have life. That they might actually enjoy God and enjoy His creation and enjoy one another in a flourishing, God honoring way. Now, with that all kind of in the back of our heads, let's take a look at the text at hand this morning. Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 1. Moses is speaking and writing, saying this When all these things happen to you, the blessings and the curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while While you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Verse 2, and you and all your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, by doing everything I am commanding you today. Then he will restore, God will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your exile is at the farthest horizon, he will gather you. And bring you back from there. Now again, what's kind of going on? What's happening here in those first four verses? A couple things. First, Moses is recognizing, Moses kind of foresees that even as Israel goes into the promised land, even as Israel has this second instruction, this second teaching of God's heart and God's design, that Israel is going to be unable to fully keep God's instructions. Israel's not going to be able to be obedient to all that God has for them. And as a a result, Moses alludes to this, and it becomes true later on in the biblical story, Israel is going to end up in what we call, what biblical authors call, the exile. They get hauled off, taken away from the promised land, sent hundreds of miles to the east. Babylon, kind of the big bad empire of the day, kind of keeps them captive for a number of decades. And it's very interesting because on one hand, Israel knows the right thing to do in a certain sense. They have God's instructions. But at the very same time, do they really know the right thing to do? There's a difference between just sort of knowing something intellectually and actually knowing in the sense where it becomes a part of our lives. We're kind of working on this with our kids, right? Sometimes I'll say something to one of my kids and they go, I know. But I go, Sienna, Keyson. I know means like you actually follow through with that, right? Not just I know the words coming out of your mouth and I can recite them back to you and memorize them and, you know, write a theological paragraph about them. But I know, biblically speaking, means that I'm living into those truths. That they are becoming part of the fabric of my life. And so Moses kind of foresees by the spirit of God that Israel, likewise, doesn't really know God's instructions. There's a problem at hand. There's a gap. And that problem we're going to come to see this morning is the problem not just of our external behavior, but the problem of the human heart. The problem of, of the human heart. Look at what the text says in verse 5. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your ancestors possessed, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your ancestors. Verse 6, the Lord your God will, and this is the kind of a key phrase we're going to camp out on in a moment here. The Lord your God will, quote, circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. And you will love him, being God, with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you will live. Now, I don't know about you, but that phrase, God will circumcise your hearts, that's kind of a weird, I don't know, phrase, for lack of a better term, right? What exactly... Is Moses saying, what exactly is the Bible saying with that phrase circumcision of the heart or the circumcised heart? Well, kind of big picture, let's kind of take a little quick little two-minute detour and talk about biblically what, first off, what the heart is from a biblical perspective, right? So sometimes people might, might say, like, the heart is, like, where all our emotions and our feelings are, right? So we're first off, just we're not talking about the physical organ. I think we all understand that. Biblically speaking. But sometimes people will often say, okay, the heart is about like our emotions and our feelings. Well, I would say that's partly true. That's part of it. Biblically speaking, in biblical Hebrew, there's not actually a word for brain in Hebrew. So biblically, the biblical authors can write about how one would think with their heart. So you think and you feel with your heart. You have desires and passions and ideas from your heart. Kind of summing up like this, the heart is more or less like the control center of the human person, where all our thoughts, emotions, passions, ideas, beliefs, trust, distrust, everything that kind of animates us from the inside out is all kind of centered around this idea, this motif of the heart, to the point where we could say that for when we say things or think things like, if I only had X, then I would be happy. We would say biblically that that desire, that passion is coming from the heart, biblically speaking. You know, Thomas Cramner, he's kind of responsible for kind of our book of common prayer, said something that what the heart wants, the will desires and the mind justifies. Meaning this, that we often live and act from a place of our desires, our passions, and then we kind of trickle down a little bit later by justifying it with our own minds and our own rational Sort of ideas. The point is this. Our heart is kind of the core central piece of the human person responsible for our motivations, our passions, and our desires. But what about a circumcised heart? What's Moses getting at there? What's the Bible getting at with that sort of word picture or idea? Well, kind of the act of circumcision was part of what Israel was to do in obedience to God's covenant. Saying that they were, for the males, a part of the covenant family of God. And applying that to this kind of word picture or metaphor of the circumcised heart, what God is saying through Moses is that it's not enough just to have sort of the outer behavior taken care of. That the outer more or less needs to be removed so that I can work on the depths of who you are. To get at the core of who you are. And for God to come and quote circumcise one's heart is to remove sort of that outer stuff. And to really get and address at the deep core of who we are as a person to the point where it's not just good enough, according to scripture, to just do the right thing out of obligation or duty, to just sort of put on a performance or put on an act and sort of do the right things and even say the right things and show up here and volunteer for this and behave this certain way if our hearts aren't fully aligned. Jesus would say later on in the gospels, these people, they arm you with their lips Outward action, but their hearts are far from me. It's the, the, the depth of who we are, the core personhood of who we are that God is after. And that would, yes, translate and transforms us from the inside out so that, yes, our external actions do matter. Our behavior does matter. I'm not saying behavior does not matter at all. No. But the way, God's way, of getting at transformation is from the inside out. To circumcise, to get in the, like, like a good doctor, a good surgeon. Working in the depths of who we are so that we might experience the healing and the life and the transformation that God has for us. One of my favorite pastors, well he's a former pastor, retired a number of years ago, Tim Keller in New York City. About every three sermons he'll quote John Newton's line. John Newton wrote that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. But he also wrote another uh, a hymn where in that line, or in a line of that, John Newton would write, Our pleasure and our duty... Though opposite before, right? So what we desire, what we want, our pleasure, and our duty, what we have to do, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, because we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Meaning this that as we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as we behold the glory of who God is, we just sung about all blessing and honor and glory and power are his. As we gaze upon the person of Jesus, the spirit of God does a work in our hearts to to the point where before coming to Christ, before God really gets a hold of our lives, before the spirit of God does a work, a deep work of transformation, our pleasures, our desires, and what we're called to do, if we're honest, we often, often separate. I'll often want to just do my own thing. It's not, Lord, let your will be done. It's, God, I want my will to be done. Right? But as we, what, what this line is saying, gaze upon the person of God as we understand who he is, understand his love for us, receive his love. The spirit of God does this work of transformation where our pleasure and our duty become more and more aligned. Aligned to his, God's Pleasures, God's desires. So now the things that we ought to do, according to scripture, are the things we also want to do. And that, my friends, is freedom. That, my friends, is where joy in life is found, where we follow God not out of kind of this begrudging, I have to, gritting my teeth, this is like a chore, but we follow God out of delight and of joy. There's this With this passion and this zeal, and that, friends, that is freedom. That is where life is found. And that God wants that for each and every one of us in this room. To become the kinds of people over a lifetime, over a process, by the work of the Spirit in our lives. Transforming, or in the language of Moses, circumcising our hearts. So that our pleasure and our duty become one and the same. Later biblical writers would agree with this. Ezekiel, foreseeing a day when the Messiah would come and the gift of the Spirit would be given to all of God's people, talks about removing of the heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, and giving God's people a heart of flesh, a soft, receptive, humble heart. Jeremiah 31 equal, or it says basically the same thing. Jesus comes onto this scene and he also is preaching this sort of message. It's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus would say. And that's where Jesus is after our transformation, the depths of who we are as a person. Now, the question becomes, in light of sort of all this discussion around the circumcised heart, what does that circumcised heart actually look like? What does it actually look like in life? This idea of a circumcised heart could also be summarized or kind of equated with a transformed heart. A life that's been transformed by the Spirit of God. What does a transformed heart really look like? What is, what is sort of the, the ideas or the practices or the life of a transformed life or a transformed heart? Well, based on the text, I think there's three sort of really key ideas that take place here. A transformed heart is a heart that loves, that obeys, and that has life. I want to show you directly from the text where all this is coming from. You kind of see this on the screen here, but love, obey. In life. Look at me me first, love, starting in verse 6 of chapter 30. The Lord your God, again that same language, will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. And you will love him with your heart and with your soul so that you will live. Notice what Moses is saying. That as God transforms, or again that same language, circumcises one's heart. The life that, that, that comes, that exudes from that, the transformed life, the transformed heart, is a heart that truly, genuinely loves God. Now, this might seem simple, but hang with me for a second. Because we, offer honest, have a whole lot of other competing loves and affections. That can be good things, but oftentimes distract us from our deepest desire to truly love God and honor him. And the transform heart, the heart that has really been circumcised, that has been worked on by the spirit of God, increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly over time, more and more loves and desires the things of God. And in addition to that, Jesus, he really connects this not just with our vertical love for God, but also our horizontal love for neighbor. For Jesus, it's impossible to say, I love God vertically without a horizontal extending of that love to our neighbor. I think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, most important commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The rich person says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of an unlovable person demonstrating godly love. And the challenge of that for us to say, if I really love God, am I really willing to love the unlovable of society? If I'm really Someone who has heart has been transformed and grit by the love of God. Yes, it's a passion, a devotion, an adoration of the person of Jesus. And extending that love to the person across the street. The person that uh, kind of drives me nuts here and there. Expanding and sharing that love of God is a fruit or an evidence that our hearts have been transformed by God's love. That's the first one. Transformed heart loves God. The second one, a transformed heart obeys God. Look at me, verse 8. Then you will obey him and follow his commands I am commanding you today. Pretty simple, but a couple things to point out here. First, notice the logic, notice the flow. It's not obey, then love. It's love then, the first word of verse 8. Then you will obey. Do you see that? It's from a place of love, it's from a place of receiving God's love, being saturated in God's love, and extending God's love, that we then joyfully obey what God has for us. That we become, again, the the word obey is another word that we go, I don't really like that word either, right? For honest. But obedience is meant to guide us into what God has for us, that we would again experience his flourishing and his life for us. And so this transformed heart that truly does love God is also obedient to the things of God. 1 John 3.16. Most of us are pretty familiar with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. But 1 John 3.16, it's another 3.16 to maybe memorize or pay attention to. John writes, this is the love of God. That we obey or keep his commandments. For John, you can't divorce love of God from obedience. They go together. And again, this is not obedience to earn God's favor. This is not obedience to earn God's love. This is not obedience to enter into the kingdom of God. This is obedience that has been shaped and transformed from the inside out. An obedience that says yes to God because God has already and is doing a deep work of healing and transformation in our lives. A heart that wants to know, like the, the, the poet of Psalm 19, a heart that wants to delight and savor and cherish God's word. Because what God's word says is meant for my joy and for the flourishing of my neighbor. And then if we begin to understand and relish and soak ourselves in what God says to to us, and not just what he says in a knowledge, sort of abstract sense, but in a practical lived out sense, we begin to experience the Spirit's healing and empowering in our daily lives. Another thing to point out with this kind of idea with obey. The word obey in Hebrew is the word shema. And the word shema, we've kind of talked about this a little bit before, but the word shema is also the same word for listen, listen. Hear and obey. The ancient Hebrews just had one word for all three of those. Meaning this. How many of you have ever had a moment with your kids where you say something to your kids like, you're not hearing me or you're not listening to me. And your kid responds with, I am listening to you or I did hear you. And you're like, no, no, no. If you are actually listening to me, you would actually do what I have told you to do, right? Right? And so we have two different words here. We have like the word hear and the word obey as if they're two separate things. That you can hear someone and may or may not necessarily mean you're obeying that person, right? But if you were to talk to an ancient Israelite a couple thousand years ago and be like, you know what? I'm listening to God. I'm hearing God's voice. I'm hearing God's word, but ah, I don't know about obeying. They would have looked at you kind of funny. Because to actually hear God's voice, to actually listen to God, was exactly synonymous with obeying God. Those two are not separate things in the biblical story. Those two go together. And again, as God is working and circumcising and transforming our hearts, we are becoming the kinds of people that, yes, listen and hear God's voice, which also means that we become the kinds of people who joyfully obey what God has for us. So that's the second one, obey. The third one, life. Take a look at verse 11. Moses writes, This command I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is not in heaven so that you have to ask. Who will go up to heaven and get it for us and proclaim it to us? Who will cross the sea and get it for us and proclaim to us that we may follow it? Just fun fact real quick. Paul in Romans 10 quotes this exact same line for the New Testament believers in the church in Rome talking about this concept of obeying and following God's, God's instructions. So it's not just an Old Testament thing here. What Moses is saying here also applies to Paul in the book of Romans. That what God is instructing us, what God is calling us, is not something that's like, oh, that's so far I can't really. No, no. God has given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He is walking with us, empowering us, transforming us to become the kinds of people that love God and obey God. But notice what else he says. But this message, verse 14, is near to your heart, in your mouth, or in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may follow it. Verse 15, see today, I have set before you life and good, death and evil. Like Adam and Eve in the garden that presented Israel with a choice. Will they choose to trust God or will they choose to go their own way? Verse 16, for I am commanding you today. To love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands and statutes and ordinances. Here's the line. So that you may live. Do you see the logic there? The love of God, the obedience to God, God's heart for that is that Israel might live. And not just live by like breathing, you know, oxygen molecules. But by actually living the flourishing life that God has for them. So that you might live and multiply. And the Lord, Yahweh your God, may bless you in the land that you are entering. Moses goes on and he says this in verse 19. Therefore, in light of all that we've just talked about, choose life. Israel's presented with the choice to choose life. Kind of the balls in Israel's court. Which direction is Israel going to go? God is offering them life through being saturated in his love, being obedient to his commands. God is offering them life in this new venture, in this new season going into the promised land. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh your God, obeying his voice. And this is key, holding fast to him. Right? This is all from a deep place of intimacy and connection with God. Holding fast to him. For he is your life in length of days. Now as I was, as we're thinking about this, as we're kind of focusing in on this idea of a transformed heart. A heart that loves God. A heart that obeys God. A heart that chooses God's life. That chooses life over all the other options in the world. What might this look like for us today? If this is what a transformed heart is, how does this actually work itself out in our everyday lives here in 2021? What might might be some practices or ideas or habits for us to gear our hearts, to orient our hearts to the person of Jesus? And I think it's important. What we're not saying here is that we have to do a bunch of things in order to earn God's favor or earn God's love. Remember, Israel has already been saved. Israel has already been delivered, right? They've already experienced God's grace and God's rescue. And now as a response God is inviting them to choose life with a transformed heart for us. What does it look like for us to choose life? Now, why don't I just take a few minutes as we land the plane here to talk really about some habits that I've come across, that I'm trying to incorporate into my own life that really help orient my heart and my affections and my desires and my thoughts towards the person of Jesus, that I might choose him over other things in this world. Four sort of simple habits or practices that I invite you, as the Spirit leads, to maybe implement one or two of these this week. And I'll put them all up on the screen here. But the first one is simply just physical prayer. Physical prayer. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that as a human being, we are embodied creatures. Right? Sometimes we kind of fall into this trap of, with this dichotomy of spiritual and physical as if they're kind of separate realities. When in fact, biblically speaking, we are embodied whole person creatures. And so this practice of physically praying is simply this. That three times a day or at various moments of the day, I want to become the kind of person that changes my physical posture in a quick, simple, short prayer to Jesus. Meaning this that if usually if I'm usually sitting in my office or sitting at my desk, using Surrey as like you know like an alarm to remind myself, just simply getting on my knees and just physically changing my body posture to maybe pray the Lord's Prayer. And as I'm doing that, I find that my heart and my affections are becoming more aligned with the person of Jesus. That what I do with my body actually connects with what's going on on the inside. And so I w- perhaps want to invite you, it's really simple, it's really easy, it doesn't take a whole lot of time, but maybe figure out what might work for you at a lunch break or maybe before you come home from work to pause, to maybe have your hands open and simply just pray, God, help me to receive your love right now. But Holy Spirit, please help me with X. But to do that in sort of a way where you're not just in that same physical, like you're changing something about your body physically for a moment. To remind yourself and to really reorient your heart to the person of Jesus. That our hearts would be more attuned and more aligned with what God is already doing in us in that moment. The second one is simply just having a meal with someone on a regular basis. One meal, if you can, every day with some other human being. Sometimes we think of food as like fuel only and it's just about getting to the next thing. Where it's microwave, or just kind of eating right over the sink, and it's done really, really fast. Void of relationship, void of connection. But food, I believe, is actually more meant not just for fuel, but for our fellowship with one another. And I find that as I have a regular meal with someone every single day, usually someone within my own household, that I've been getting to be pointed out and seeing that my heart is being more attuned to loving my neighbor. In loving the people that God has placed in front of me. And just not just living in this siloed individual sort of self or, you know, pattern of living. That by having relationships and connections with other people over food, my heart is more geared toward loving other people, not just myself. And a practice we've done as a family is not just having a meal every single day with each other that live in the same household, but also having a weekly meal with someone outside of our household. Usually someone from our well community. Or with our well community. Every Tuesday, 5.30, it is marked on our calendar. We have food with the same families every single Tuesday. And it's this habit, this practice, where we break bread together. We share one another's pains and stories and grow in friendship and trust with one another. And that my heart, through this practice, through this habit, is becoming more oriented to the person of Jesus. The third one is simply this. Try this week to go one hour without your phone on each day. And you might be like, where are you getting that from? But here's the thing. I have found that my heart wanders and gets distracted because of the phone. And I think there's a a miss sometimes. When we talk about discipleship to Jesus in our modern culture, in our modern context, to not also talk about the distraction of the phone, I think that's a miss. That something is happening With our phones and the habits with our phones that are sometimes, not always bad, but sometimes, and more often than we like to admit, distracting us and taking us away and our hearts become, as the song that we often sing, prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here is my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And practically speaking, what does that actually look like? Well, for me, if I'm being honest, it means having a regular habit of having my phone completely off and being present not just to the 10 million different things that potentially could be in that supercomputer, but being present to the people right in front of me. And again, it's reorienting my mind and affections and my heart to the person of Jesus. You know, remember in Harry Potter, the character Voldemort? And he like created all those horcrux things and he was trying to be like present everywhere. But in his effort to be present everywhere, it actually leads leads to his demise And I think something like that happens with the phone. We're trying to be present everywhere, and it's actually eating at our souls. It's actually hurting our affections and our love for the person of Jesus. The last one I'll just mention, probably the one I'm actually most passionate about, is the simple practice of scripture before phone. Again, choosing, this is, remember, Israel, the invitation was to choose life. And again, something intentional about that choosing life and God's word is a source of life for us and so perhaps this week and again there's schedules there's probably caveats here and there but for I would say for the most of us in this room just to press and challenge a bit to choose scripture before phone this week this means you might actually need to go on Amazon and buy something that's called an alarm clock right (laughs) So your phone's not the alarm clock because I've done that thing, right? I've done the phone being the alarm clock and the phone to the alarm clock is also Instagram, it's also email, and it's also Apple News, right? How many of you have been down that road before, right? It's okay, but here's the thing. By choosing scripture before phone, it's another way to orient and to bring my heart back into alignment with the person of Jesus. To say, yes, there's a million other things I'm sure are really important, but what's most important What's most necessary for my life is to pursue the person of Jesus. And so this is just, again, some practical ideas that we're trying to incorporate. If you're like, in our well community, we're working on the scripture before phone one. Our young adults group is working on that one too. Just as a way to, as a community, I would encourage you to do this in community, not just by yourself. To encourage and, and build up one another In this direction of choosing life, of orienting our hearts towards the person of Jesus. Now, one last thing before we close. I want us to say this. Sometimes we think of, you might think, okay, these habits, is this like borderline legalism? Or is this like borderline like, you know, we're trying to earn God's, no, this is not that at all. Again, Israel has already been saved. This is all a response to the work that God is already doing in our hearts. It's kind of like I think of the, the analogy is like kindling for a fire, right? I'm not great at starting fires. We have this running joke in our young adults group. We have a fire every Wednesday in our backyard that Aaron can't start the fire. So usually someone else, usually Rachel has to start the fire for us. But I'm, see, I'm not like an outdoor person. My, when we go camping, we get an Airbnb. So like that's, that's our idea of camping. But the idea with kindling, right, is that there's these little pieces of wood, this, these little sort of things that begin to ignite and spark and create this beautiful warm fire to enjoy each other's company. And habits like these, they're like that little kindling. They're like that igniting that little spark where the Spirit of God just breathes and pours out onto that. And that the impact and the breadth and the work that the Spirit of God does is often more than we actually expect in our own minds. And that's what we're saying. That's what Scripture is inviting us to. To be the kinds of people that place ourselves under the love of God so that God's spirit can do the work that only he can do. That we would organize and structure our lives to become the kinds of people that, yes, choose him in order that the spirit of God would do the work of transformation in our own hearts. And recognizing that in those moments when we fall short, because friends, you and I both know we will fall short. We won't always be obedient to the commands and the voice of God. We won't always remember these things that Aaron's saying scripture before, but we're not perfect at this. We are all on a journey together. But again, even in those moments of failure, those moments of falling short are also can be moments of formation. Moments where we recognize the grace of God in the person of Jesus. Recognizing that what God has done for us in the person of Christ. Giving us his forgiveness. Giving us himself in spite of who I am. And bringing us back again to that place of humility and dependence on him. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. And as we spend these next few moments singing in worship to God, I want to invite all of us, if we can, to just be in in that posture of receiving what God has for you this morning. I believe God is speaking to each and every one of us. Where is God inviting you to intentionally choose him? What practice or habit might help you become the kind of person that opens yourself up to the love of God where God's spirit begins to work deep within your heart? And to recognize that God is the one who brings the transformation. That God is the one who's doing this work in us. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he who began a good work in you We'll be faithful to complete it. Let's turn and respond and trust to him. God, we do ask that in this moment, you would help each and every one of us by the power of your spirit, recognizing who we are as your children, adopted, loved by you. That you would help us to be responsive to who you are and what you're calling us to. Each of us, God. God, that you are doing a work of transformation, that you want to help us to become the kinds of people that love you, obey you, and have life in you. So God, give us eyes to see, clarity, and vision. What does that look like for us this morning? So Spirit of the living God, would you breathe upon each of every one of us? Would you help us to see afresh the beauty of Jesus so that our pleasure and our duty, though they might be opposite before would be joined to part no more. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray and ask all these things in your name. Amen. Let's just stay in a posture of worship.